The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be with everybody this morning, and happy Mother's Day to all of you who had that experience in hard for those of us who haven't raised kids and haven't given birth to even begin to comprehend what that's like. One of the real mysteries for those of us who aren't mothers, and especially at this time, the, you know, the interesting issue of nurture and taking care and those who are joining us this morning for the first time I've been talking the last I think seven or eight weeks now on caring for the heart and mind as part of the Buddhist path and so the Buddhist path you know beginning with the wisdom where our heart understands it really matters how we're showing up and how we're relating we usually just start with the most obvious thing okay it matters so that means it matters how I'm relating to other people. It matters the kind of attitude I have when I'm interacting with the people I live with. And whether that way of relating, that way of being in the world, plants seeds for greater suffering in my own heart and in the hearts of those around me, or whether my way of relating and being in the world is a cause for peace and healing and justice. So the path begins with the wisdom that it matters. We apply that wisdom right, with this interest. Okay, how does it matter now that I'm in relationship with the world? I have responsibilities. I inhabit this space. I'm part of this community. How does it matter? What are the, what are the skillful ways of relating? What are the unskillful ways of relating? And then we take that and this is what we've been talking about the last seven or eight weeks, we take that understanding, that wisdom that it matters, and we apply it in a more subtle way in terms of how we're taking care of this mind and heart, how we're caring for this mind and heart. Am I relating, am I showing up to what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing with wisdom in a way that plants seeds of healing in my heart plant seeds for greater clarity and understanding, or not? Or am I agitating my mind, setting emotion, more distortion, more reactivity? And it's these are challenges for us, both the caring for the world and the caring for our heart. But this is exactly this exposure, meaning the exposure to being a social being, being in relationship, living in community, right? That exposure develops, deepens the wisdom. Just as taking responsibility for the quality of our own heart and mind, it's really skillful. It's not easy, but it's really skillful because it's exactly because we take, we do our best at least to take responsibility for the quality of our heart and mind that we get sort of pushed around by that. We, 
we learn what doesn't help and we eventually learn what helps. We learn how to participate in a way. And the alternative is some version of giving up, you know, and and thinking that life is really about avoiding learning and just trying to get through to the end without too much pain. Well, that's not a very inspired view for living our lives. Last week I mentioned, you know, I was talking about nature and we can sometimes have this romanticized view of nature that it's really here to take care of me. Like a Garden of Eden, it's a wonderful place. It's really here to provide me with beautiful sense experiences. But nature is neither here to, you know, be our salvation, to provide for us, nor is nature here to get us and to, you know, be the demon that is going to torment us. Nature is just nature. These very complex, interdependent movement of causes and conditions. And it's important that we respect nature in that way. So it's really uh, teasing out any romantic, any idealistic, even in terms of seeing nature as bad. I'm sure many of you were moved, upset, disturbed, deeply disturbed by the shooting that happened a few months ago in Georgia, uh, African-American man jogging, who was tracked down by a couple of white men and shot apparently for no good reason, except uh, being a black man running. And, uh, you know, when we watch the video or just read the news report and realize that that's part of the nature, part of the nature of our community, the reverberations of racism and ignorance and, you know, a lot of different forces moving together, leading to something you know, in some ways unfathomable, like that murder, that shooting. And so this is the world we inhabit where things like this happen, sometimes in really intensely dramatic ways and, and a lot of the time and, and just ordinary, um, the ordinary exposure to change and to uncertainty and vulnerability, like when we cut our hand, or when we bump our head, or when something really beautiful, some wonderful healing interaction happens. So in what the Buddha realized and what he taught and what we can take up is this, not, uh, this sort of developing a non-dependence on the wildness of these causes and conditions, and instead realizing that the place to direct our heart is in developing a wise way of relating to the wildness of these causes and conditions, these circumstances that are in motion, that all of us are exposed to, some of us having you know, a more privileged exposure to causes and conditions, some of us having a more difficult 
exposure, more challenging exposure to causes and conditions. But all of us vulnerable, none of us in control of that movement of causes and conditions. And what the, the Buddhist teachings are about is realizing that it really matters how I engage this wildness of my own mind and how it thinks and perceives and feels and the world around me and how it moves. It really matters how I relate and I'm going to take that up as sort of, you know, in a way we construct that as our path. So I'm living as a human being with this path of learning that it matters and learning how it matters that I show up in the wider world and how it matters that I show up with my own mind and heart. So that that framing that it matters and that we're responsible for the world and we're responsible for our heart, it really helps. It's a pragmatic way to help in the learning. Well, what is skillful? in relating in the world. Well, what is skillful in relating to the sensitive heart, this thinking mind? What actually helps us plant seeds of justice in the wider world, fairness, and what actually helps us plant seeds of clarity and calm and uh, emotional healing in the inner world of our mind and heart? And one of the things, you know, and this is what I've been talking about the last few weeks when we um, looked at the Buddhist teachings on the hindrances, what is it that hinders the clarity, the stability, the wisdom and kindness of present moment awareness, what gets in the way, right? And then we can sort of sum up what gets in the way is the mind misunderstanding desire. <clears throat> Often in the tradition, it can seem like the Buddha or the teachings are saying that desire is somehow unskillful. And people use the word desire in different ways. I don't find that a helpful way to language what the Buddha is saying, that desire itself is unskillful. Desire is desire. It seems like there's no way to be a living being without desire. So desire moves. It's in a way the animating um, quality or aspect of our heart and mind, desire. But in misunderstanding desire, in, in when my mind imputes that there's a me, a Mark, who owns that desire, who is that desire, then the mind starts, my mind starts to relate to the desire as if it's something that in fact it's not. So then if I'm relating, taking desire personal, then when I have the desire for something, I feel that there's a personal stake in getting what I want or getting rid of what I don't want. There's this wonderful simple line from Sylvia Borstein that is really to this point. She wrote somewhere, desire pulls so hard it's surprising to find that it's empty. So I'm assuming some of you know Sylvia Borstein, a wonderful Buddhist writer, insight meditation teacher, one of the founders of Spirit Rock, 
meditation center in Northern California, just north of San Francisco. And uh, desire pulls so hard, it's surprising to find that it's empty. And this insight, right, it really calls into question so much of the programming of our habit energy, which is basically pursuing desires, getting rid of what we don't like, getting what we want, and presuming that that way of relating to nature, that way of relating to my mind and to the world around me, to the people around me, getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want, that's what leads to our salvation or happiness. And the wisdom that it matters, and we start to pay attention to our experience, then this is one of the deeper insights we have, that attachment to desire, identifying with desire as if it refers back to me, and then taking that on as our so-called life strategy, like following the lead of desire, that doesn't work. And there's this really difficult transition as that insight is deepening, that identifying with our desires isn't helping. And by the way, I'm sure you realize, we learn this not just through observing our own desires, but observing other people getting attached, identified with their desires, and then what that leads to. And over and over again, we learned a lesson, the lesson, this is the cause for suffering. So if you ever end up in a Buddhist quiz and they ask you, what is the cause for suffering? Saying that it's desire is not a nuanced answer. The more clear and useful understanding is not that desire is the cause for suffering, but the mind misunderstanding what desire is and therefore gripping desire, identifying with it, and acting it out as if it, the desire refers to me, a me, a solid, permanent me, that relationship with desire causes suffering. Not only here, but all around us. We keep harming each other in little and, and really terrible ways because we misunderstand desire. And that example I gave a few minutes ago about the shooting in Georgia is a perfect example. It's easy to think that those two men who shot Ahmad were evil. And it's okay to talk about their actions being evil or unskillful or whatever. But the fact is, there was desire and misunderstanding. And that's what leads to these kinds of actions that have so many reverberations, right? Cause uh, layer upon layer of suffering. This is from Saida Utejaniya, a Burmese teacher that <clears throat> is taught in the West and really has had recently, the last 15 years or so, a really powerful influence in the early Buddhism tradition here in the West. And this is his book, Dhamma Everywhere. So it's written in this book, because the mind is covered by the defilements, right? These qualities of mind that hinder awareness. We are unable to understand nature as it is. Whatever is happening in the present moment is nature, is Dhamma the way it is. Even defilements, the torments of the mind, become Dhamma, 
become nature. Nature is arising, knowing is arising, awareness is arising, object in mind, object in mind. So remember we often say in terms of meditation instructions, this experience, this object of experience is being known. And that's what Sayada means by object in mind, object in mind. Something is being known. And he continues writing, In nature there is nobody there. Nature is not us, not them, not other. Nature is just nature. Dhamma is ever-present, and there is Dhamma talk everywhere. Right? So nature, in a sense, is here to teach us not to cling, or to teach us to align with nature being nature. That's how we participate. We learn how to let nature teach us. Initially, it teaches us to let go. Not let go in terms of being passive. That's the, another misunderstanding that's common in Buddhism. When we hear things like letting go or non-attachment, we hear passivity. But what this exposure, this intimacy with nature, what it teaches at the heart is to let go of misunderstanding desire. So we're only letting go of one thing. We're letting go of the ignorance that presumes that this movement in nature we call desire, the liking, the not liking, the attraction, the repulsion, to not be confused by that. Well, that's just nature. That, that leaning forward, that desiring, it's just something that happens and it's like this. It feels like this. It's just saying what it's saying, that this mind finds that attractive or this mind finds that repulsive. It doesn't tell us what to do. right? There are many times we have a desire for something. It's not saying we should grab it and take it. Maybe it's not ours. It's not appropriate to take. So we can't help how desire moves through us in our heart because it it's really the result of so much complex conditioning through culture for example through our genetics that our likes and dislikes are handed to us in a sense as a gift from nature it's impersonal but it's real desire is real <laughs> and none of us doubt that we feel it but we can understand it as nature Right? And then he continues writing here and, and mentions that this is our teacher. right? Where It's teaching us how to be with desire, how to let go of an ignorant way of relating to desire. He writes, Nature is always teaching us Dhamma, but we are unable to hear. If we can see nature as it really is, the mind is free. Not free in being passive, but then free to participate with desire, with nature, with the activity in our mind and heart, the activity in our relationships, and our communities. Now we're free to act without being driven or blinded even by desire. If desire arises, the desire to harm, the desire to get, the desire to hold, if that arises, 
and it appears skillful like not planting seeds for suffering here or there, then desire isn't a problem to take into the world of action. But as a desire arises and the mind understands it's not self, it's not personal, but it's here, and when feeling the movement of desire, sense that it is going to cause harm here or there, then we have this option, which is just to feel the desire moving without acting it out. And that's what Sylvia's comment really points to. Desire is so hard. Um, desire pulls so hard. Right? It feels so real. It's surprising to find that it's empty. And by that, I think she means that, and hopefully you've had this insight where you felt that pull of desire. It felt so real, like there's re there really is a me who needs to fulfill this desire, needs to get rid of or get. But we hang in there just feeling the intensity, the aliveness of that desire, that life energy, but we don't act it out. We're curious, we're not repressing it. We're just letting it move, reveal itself, desiring as being known. And then, lo and behold, desire ceases without us acting it out or gratifying the desire. And it's so uh, important to realize that the desire, whether it's at the end of the spectrum of hating, like wanting to get rid of something, or the desire to get something, that desire ceases without gratification, without acting on it, identifying with it. And that's a real empowerment, because that means I can be in a world, like have a body and a mind where desire is always moving, but not acting it out with ignorance and keep keeping on setting emotion, suffering for myself and others. That is the world we often feel and see around us. And unfortunately, at times we participate in that world where, in a sense, we're driven by desire, no wisdom, just that ignorant identification and acting out of desire without concern with, uh, in terms of what that might set in motion. And then we get a world like the world we live in, so this is really the tension. Initially, it feels like we always hear the cliche about spiritual practice, about going with the flow. But initially, you know, as this wisdom that it matters develops, and we bring that wisdom it matters into the world of our relationships and communities, and we bring that wisdom that it matters into navigating and opening to what's moving in the heart and mind, it's not just like going with the flow, because the wisdom know that it matters, and the wisdom that it's really this compassionate wisdom that knows, I don't want to plant more seeds of suffering in my interactions out in the world, and in my interactions within my own mind and heart. I want to be full of care. I want to be wise, so that I'm planting seeds that lead onward to release and to healing, in the heart, and in the world. Um, I was uh, leading a group for the Northfield Buddhist Center uh, yesterday, Saturday, and 
somebody read this passage from Wendell Berry that I don't think I had heard before, but it's, it's really beautiful. It's called The Real Work. And again, by <clears throat> Wendell Berry, an environmentalist and writer and wise person. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. And I think part of what this poem might, these words might be pointing to, is this seeming tension when the mind knows that it matters, and then that because the mind knows it matters, it brings this compassionate, wise, somewhat continuous presence to the activity of our lives and relationship out in the world and brings this compassionate attention to the activity of our own mind and heart. Because this tension that it matters, we don't want to just act out every impulse, every habit, because we know it matters. So we want to, we create this kind of tension, this, uh, well, let me feel, let me sense the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of what's arising in my heart, what's showing up in this interaction with this other person and this group of people. Let me feel and let me intuit, let me sense, is this helpful? Is it skillful? Am I contributing in some positive way toward healing? Or am I setting emotion more greed, more hatred, more reactivity, more tightness in my heart and in those around me. And because we care, we're willing initially to inhabit that somewhat tense place of, of being a moral, I know we need to sort of use that word in new ways because it can push our buttons, but being a moral being that cares about how we're showing up because it matters. So I'm gonna, I'm willingly inhabiting this tension because I know it's possible for me to be unskillful. So I'm going to be vigilant. I'm going to shine this light out of compassion for myself and others. I'm going to shine this light of awareness and wisdom that is going to practice not being confused by desire so that the wisdom can sense what it might set in motion if it were to be acted out. And we often talk about what gets in the way, but today, for the last few minutes, I wanted to share um, the wholesome qualities that we can keep in mind. And this list, this map, is a really good one to memorize, just like knowing what hinders the clarity in the mind, like greed and hate and dullness and restlessness and worry and doubt, these five hindrances, it's really good to know what qualities, when imbalanced, lead to the mind seeing clearly what it needs to see clearly, like the causes for suffering and the causes for healing. Isn't that what we want to see? 
So then it really begs the question, well, what are the qualities when imbalanced in my heart and mind, or anybody's heart and mind, allow that mind to see things as they are? So then that mind understands more and more deeply, oh, this isn't helping, oh, this is really leading to deeper healing and freedom. I was reading an article by Gil Fronstall recently, and uh, he's talking about the seven factors of awakening, which is one of the important lists of the wholesome qualities that support awakening. And he mentioned that in the suttas, this is uh, a talk the Buddha gave near the end of his life, and that um, instead of emphasizing like what somebody, a good practitioner, should believe in, it's much more, as the Buddha often was, very pragmatic. What qualities of the heart and mind, when present and in balance, naturally lead to seeing clearly and to skillful engagement with the world? He writes, this is Gil Fronstall, These factors create the conditions in the mind so the mind can do the kind of letting go that leads to liberation. Prior to liberation, the seven factors can be developed to the point of becoming inner strengths that facilitate the process of gradual, gradually releasing clinging. Experiences of non-clinging help us make different choices about how we live our lives. Right? When we're clinging to desire, there's no choice. In a way, we're a robot acting out that attachment to that particular desire. But when we've cultivated this non-clinging, then when desire shows up, then we can actually observe the desire and really sense if it's helpful, something to be brought in, you know, acted out, expressed in the world, or whether it's something not to repress, but just to feel. Oh yeah, a lot of lust is moving now. Lust feels like this. It's really strong. It's really intense. It's really believable. But wisdom knows it's just lust being felt, being known. And then Gill writes, <clears throat> This in turn can support the process of developing the seven factors and further reducing clinging. So just uh, as a kind of homework this week, I'll go through these seven factors. You might even make a note. And of course, we're recording the live stream, so you can just come to this part near the end to hear them again, and you can find them, of course, in many of the good Dharma websites and wonderful talks and articles about the seven factors of awakening. And of course, as you might imagine, the first of these wholesome qualities is mindfulness, which is in a way the governing wholesome factor, because it's mindfulness that will help reveal what the other six are and whether they're in balance. And of course, mindfulness is very simple. It's that awareness that recognizes the present moment. It's the valuing, right? The valuing of knowing this is the present moment. This is being known. We mentioned, I mentioned earlier um, when I was reading Saida Utejaniya's quote, object and mind, right? Something is being known. So mindfulness is that quality of mind that remembers that this moment is something being known. There's knowing, knowing this experience. So it's a 
it really simplifies the moment because mindfulness recognizes that this moment, the present moment, is something being known. It acknowledges something's being known. It's not forgetful that something is being known. Oh yeah, this is being known. This feeling, this emotional feeling is being known. This sensation is being known. This content moving as thought is being known. This sight, this sound is being known. So just six things are being known. The five, one of the, one aspect of the five physical sensitivities of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, or some activity of mind is being known. So that's mindfulness. The next quality is investigation, but not investigation in some kind of conceptual sense, but investigation of the underlying nature of experience. I've been talking about this a lot today, like the investigation of what's helpful and not helpful, what's skillful and not skillful. Like that active, so investigation is an energizing, dynamic quality in our heart and mind that wants to know what's skillful and unskillful. But not conceptually, doesn't want to think about what's skillful and unskillful, but it's this more direct and immediate seeing, knowing, oh yeah, oh this is how it is. And so for that investigation to actually be productive, investigation understands that I that it has to let experience reveal itself. Just like a naturalist knows that to really study another animal, it has to uh, see that animal in its natural environment and leave it alone so that it does what it does in that natural environment. And then it can come to understand the animal that it's observing. Investigation understands that same thing. So it's a very receptive, interested, like the interest is bright and active and dynamic this wholesome desire to want to understand what is the nature? Is this helpful, unhelpful? That interest of investigation then demands the energy of persistence, hanging in there, not forgetting that this investigation is relevant, is helpful, keeping it in mind, keeping the present moment in mind. That's energy and effort. That's the third. And then the last of the energizing factors, we have investigation, energy, and joy. Joy is this lightness that arises, this inner pleasure that arises because the mind now is wrapped. <laughs> R-A-P-T, right? It's, it's really there in the moment because of mindfulness, and because of investigation and the persistence, then that mind is really there. And that seclusion from superficiality and distractedness is experienced as a lightness, as a buoyant, full, um, inner pleasure that we call joy or rapture. Those are the three energizing. And they support naturally, you know, when we get some momentum, there's mindfulness recognizing this is being known. It triggers, it activates investigation. There's this desire to understand what's helpful, what's not helpful. The 
connect, be intimate with the underlying nature. The mind persists. Because of that persistence, the mind is secluded from distraction. Joy arises. And joy, in a way, quenches agitation. And so the mind begins to experience tranquility. This is the first of the tranquilizing qualities, wholesome qualities. We have tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And then that makes the seven. So tranquility is really the quality of contentedness and ease that arises because joy this is, has this inner pleasantness. And so the heart begins, the mind begins to relax its constant seeking for a nice experience because right here, the subtleness and the collectedness that has come from the investigation and the persistence and the joy, that coming together of the heart and mind, the beginning of the coming together of the heart and mind, is satisfactory in a sense. There's a, a contentedness and ease. And so a, a deepening calm. And then that, as that calm deepens more and more, it allows the mind to really collect, to gather together. So all aspects of the mind are in the service of seeing clearly the way it is. This unification of mind, samadhi, a lot of you know that word, is then the, um, so what would that be, the sixth quality. And then the last is equanimity, this beautiful balance, equanimity, equipoise of the heart and mind. Right? It's unflappable. Because the mind has healed to such a degree, it really, for a while, has some immunity from being pushed around by experience. Because the, the wisdom and samadhi is sufficient to give it that immunity. So it's there, it's clear, it's comprehending the way it is, not intellectually, but directly. Experience is coming and going, seeing that it's changing, that it's not so personal, that grasping is the cause for suffering, letting go of grasping is the cause for freedom. It's seeing all of that, and that's what's maintaining the balance, that both the seclusion and the wisdom that knows not to cling really supports that equanimity. And so that rounds off the three calming factors, which are held together by mindfulness and balance. So we have investigation, the energy of persistence, and the joy being the activating or energizing wholesome qualities. And we have tranquility, the ease of the heart. We have the stillness and unification of concentration or samadhi. And we have the balance of equanimity as the calming aspects. And mindfulness sort of knowing the particular balance in any moment, knows how to bring to mind the way we feed and strengthen these wholesome qualities is by recognizing them. And when we see any of these, like see joy, then and see it with some continuity, we'll naturally learn how to feed it, how to strengthen it. And we'll naturally catch what undermines the development of the joy. And so we get better at keeping the mind in balance so there's some real calming factors and some real energizing factors. And that's a really important thing to understand about the kind of heart we're developing. 
It's both very settled, doesn't need to act, isn't afraid of action, but it's also at the same time very bright and nimble and wieldy and capable of connecting and comprehending things that come and go in our experience. And then we have a mind and heart that can do the work of living. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.